Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News talk about issues critical to the health of the American West. I'm Brian Calvert, the editor-in-chief of High Country News. And I'm Kate Schimmel, the deputy editor digital. And today we have a really cool uh, episode coming up. We're going to talk about housing crises, that's plural, across the West. And to help us do that, we've got Julian Brave Noisecat, who just finished writing a piece for us. Uh, We've got him on Skype from Washington, D.C. Hi, Julian. Hi, Brian. Glad to be here. Uh, Well, let's uh, jump right into it here, I think. So we've really spent a lot of time on this story. It took about a year to report right and um, get out the door. Uh, And what we've done here, I think, is really take a look at one family um, who is experiencing two very different housing crises, one in the Bay Area, one on the Navajo Nation. Um, Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this story and uh, what you found most interesting about the main characters. Yeah, so I'm I'm uh, First Nations. My my family hails from the Canem Lake Band, the Canem Lake Band Sikaskan in British Columbia, Canada. But I actually grew up in Oakland, California, uh, and my story focuses on the Wakazu family, a family that I grew up with around the intertribal friendship house in Oakland, um, and you know saw them at all the community events. Uh, there was uh, their late grandmother, Grandma Wakazu. I used to sit on her lap and and be scared to go out at, and to dance at dance practice. So um, this is a very much a story about about a, a family that I you know know fairly intimately. Um, but it's also a story that's representative of a phenomenon that we're going to get into that's happening across Indian country in the West. Kate's also very afraid of dancing. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> um, Not over my fear. I'm actually a, a powwow dancer who tra- travels the circuit now, but. Um, yeah, it's not easy to get out there. <laughs> You'll get there, Kate. Thanks, um, Brian. So one of the first things I think we have to understand for uh, a lot of listeners is the idea of an urban Indian or um, the, these urban populations. Could you talk about that a little bit first before we meet Joe? Yeah, absolutely. So it, when we think of uh, Native people in, in the United States, and I'm, I'm talking, when I say we, I mean, you know, the general public, uh, we often think of you know, unfortunately, people in the 19th century in the past, you know, hunting buffalo and, and fighting the cavalry, or maybe we think of the protesters at Standing Rock, you know, off on a far off reservation, uh, you know, standing up to a pipeline fighting for their land rights. But the reality is the demographic reality is that seven out of 10 Native Americans or 3.7 million uh, people live, Native people live in cities. So we are actually um, surprisingly to many, uh, a primarily urban demographic. So although we have these notions of, of what Native people are, where they live in our uh, you know, public imagination, we're very much uh, an urban people. One of the places that has a large population of Native Americans is the Bay Area. Why is that? Yeah, so there's there's 66,000 uh, Native people, according to the, the 2010 census, living in the Bay Area, and the, the history of that, and the history of, of Native people living in many cities, is is one of of um, really socially engineered diaspora. So, beginning in in 1952, the federal government implemented uh, what was called the Urban Indian Relocation Program, which was a program to basically take Native folks from reservations and and plop them down into cities where they were they were promised. Uh, you know, low-skilled labor jobs. Uh, the reality was that when a lot of a lot of families, the Wakazus included, 
showed up in, in these urban spaces, the jobs weren't there and they ended up in, in sort of red ghettos across, across the United States in cities like Oakland, California, Denver, Colorado, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Chicago, Illinois. Um, but, but really interestingly in this, in this sort of uh, diaspora that was supposed to you know, uh, assimilate native people into the laboring population, they actually came together to form new and powerful communities. So in 1955, uh, one of the oldest urban Indian community centers was actually founded in the Bay Area right in Oakland, California, and that's the Intertribal Friendship House, uh, where I you know, bounced on Grandma Wakazoo's knee when I was a child growing up. So tell us about Joe Wakazoo. So Joe Wakazoo um, is, a, is a character in the, the Oakland native community. He moved there with his mother in uh, 1964. And um, he, he's this sort of tall, uh, handsome guy who I, I knew growing up because he would always be at our, our Thursday night dam- drum and dance practice at the Intertribal Friendship, Friendship House. Um, and he would be, he'd be dancing. He was a traditional dancer. And I at the time was an aspiring young dancer. So I'd watch Joe, um, dance and, and, you know, like learn some moves here and there. And he'd always show up, um, with his, with his then girlfriend, his late girlfriend, Jennifer Kehoe, who, um, I always remembered because she was, she was really kind, but she also wore these comically tall platform shoes. So she'd be out there dancing as well, although she was, she was white, um, and she'd have these hilarious platform shoes on. So they were uh, quite the pair in, uh, in the community. Joe refers to himself in this piece as a showy husband, which I thought was a kind of great, great line from that guy. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's a funny guy. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about where Joe has ended up. Yeah, so this is um, really the, the part of this story that was the most troubling to me. Joe is, is homeless, and he became homeless in the fall of, of 2016, basically because, well, for a number of reasons, but the leading one being that he couldn't afford to pay his part of the rent anymore, which was just $250. So Joe's, Joe's um, longtime partner, Jennifer, passed away a number of years ago, uh, and Joe sort of fell into depression. He, you know, he struggled to, to find work and to support himself. And, and eventually he was, he had to move out of his, uh, section eight home that he shared with his daughter and has been living on the streets of Oakland ever since. And, you know, that's the very common story that we're hearing now in the Bay area and Oakland since 2014, uh, homelessness has, has shot up at the same time that, that of course, gentrification and, and housing costs have shot up. So there's now roughly 5,600 uh, homeless folks living on the streets of Alameda County, uh, which is where Oakland is situated. And if you, if you drive through the Bay Area and you know, take any of the surface streets you know, under any freeway overpass or BART tracks, you'll see their encampments. So it's a very uh, prominent development and, and, and growing urban crisis that we have. Yeah, I was struck by uh, that aspect of this story, Julian. I mean, for me, it was just this strong reminder. I've lived in the Pacific Northwest on and off for a number of years. And all along these major Western cities where the economy is booming, they're growing really quickly. You just have these homelessness crises springing up. And 
I think last year, was it four or five different cities declared a state of emergency in order to free up funding? In this story, though, so many of the responses seemed inadequate to the problems that Joe and his family faced. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about like, how the system really broke down for them in Oakland and in the Bay Area. Yeah, so the the unfortunate reality, and I, I think part of the underlying story here is is the failure of uh, institutions, you know, sort of the what's left of our social safety net with regards to housing. Um, it's it's sort of failure to protect the most vulnerable. And so I think there's a, there's a few parts of this story. The first is is that you know anybody who has gone to the DMV and and had to negotiate government bureaucracy knows that it's a real pain in the butt to work with with the government on anything. There's tons of things that can go wrong. It seems like at every turn, you know, you submit a form or you know something happens to your employment status or your marital status or or whatever, and it, the 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 bureaucracy is really slow to respond. So th that's what happened for Joe's daughter, Phyllis, who's on the sort of title of the Section 8 apartment that they shared for a number of years. She lost her job and, and the Section 8 program was supposed to adjust her rent accordingly, but it took a number of years for her to get the rent adjustment. So she was paying huge amounts of her, of her already very, very small income based upon temporary assistance for needy families or TANF, the TANF program and, and, and food stamps to keep a roof over her head and her children's head. So that's that's one big problem that, that I think a lot of people um, navigate. I think the other is that, um, quite frankly, you know, it, it takes to, you know, we have this image of, of people who who live on, on welfare or benef benefit from these sort of government programs as lazy and, you know, sort of there's that old notion of the welfare queen, but it's actually quite difficult to navigate these systems. It's really hard to make sure that you you know, get all the the forms and things on, in on time to make sure that you you sort yourself to the top of the list when it comes time to you know dole out the few um, Section Eight vouchers that that exist in in Oakland, California. I think that's another um, big problem that that communities like the Native community, the urban Native community that lives in in high rates of poverty face is that it's it's hard to navigate these systems and and ultimately people who you know deserve um, you know, a roof over their head are are denied that that social right. And I think one of the really interesting parts of this particular story is something that really speaks to just all of us are human, right? And our lives are kind of messy. Not mine, but yours, Kate, obviously. But most Very people's lives are pretty messy. And so Joe was living with Phyllis and wasn't quite able to get the rent together and kind of realized maybe he should get out of there. It's not super clear why he did, but he did. And I think we can all kind of understand that, uh, which then sort of kicks in this other thing because then Phyllis doesn't have enough family members living with her to sort of satisfy the requirements of Section 8 housing. And I thought that was really, uh, must have been a very difficult thing for you to uh, report through. Um, so, for Joe, it doesn't seem like he has a really good answer for why that why that is. Do you have a sense of why he just couldn't quite make that part work? I was really curious just about how Joe handles that paradox. Yeah, so I think part of um, what became apparent to me in the re the reporting on this piece is that there, there's this one way in which we talk about housing that is, you know, um, how rent burdened people are across the country, you know, what percentage of their 
of their income? Are they paying for rent? How many new units do we need? How many more people have become homeless? There's this very sort of sterile, statistical way that we talk about housing, right? But there's this other there's this other reality of of housing, which is housing as the home. Uh, you know, the place where all of us grew up and 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 where we shared with our family. Um, you know, where traumatic things happened, where beautiful things happened. And so I think that's that's a big part of this story, as 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 your question's suggesting. You know, there's there's a lot more to uh, people's housing problems than than just the pure economics of keeping a roof over your head. And you know, I I, I, I as I was reporting through this, I um I was often I was often drawn back in my mind to um, a, a very you know, I'm sure some of your listeners will know the the Sherman Alexi piece, uh, what it means to say Phoenix, Arizona. This is what it means to say Phoenix, Arizona, where um, I think it's maybe it's Victor falls apart or Lester falls apart. One of the the main character's father, um, who was this he- heroic kind of figure who rescued these 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 other guys in a in a fire. One day he just kind of picks up. And and moves on to Phoenix and ends up living in a in a trailer there and then he passes away and then the whole story is about them, you know, going to honor the memory of this father who's really a complicated figure who just kind of disappeared one day. And I think part of part of what what's underlying here is that there's just a lot of emotional baggage, not just the economic and social complexity, but there's a lot of emotional baggage that comes along with being a native person that comes along with living in the aftermath of 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 an Armageddon that that you know lives as we know in in native people's DNA in in the legacy of of historical trauma, and so I think that there's 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 part of that to this story that you know I didn't want to put explicitly, but that I think um, partially explains why uh, this is just something that we know happens in 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 native communities that our loved ones sometimes just pick up and and leave and and go elsewhere. Right. And I thought a really interesting point that you brought out in your story is that these original gentrification <laughs> occurred at the um, great disadvantage of indigenous peoples. And so that the American story is really one a big, big, long process of gentrification. I, I thought that was a, a fascinating point to bring up. And did you have that in mind as you went in or in the reporting of this and spending some time with Joe and other folks in the Bay Area? What was it like to report that story? I don't think that 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 came to me uh, immediately. It wasn't a prefabricated theory of how do we look at the this indigenous housing crisis that we see unfolding both in cities and on reservations, which I'm sure we'll get to later, um, as sort of the perpetuation of of this centuries long gentrification. I don't think I came into it with that. But as as I sort of sat with the the Wakasus and was was there with their story. Um, and you know, I did take quite some time to to do the writing and the reporting. You know, I, a lot of this stuff began over the summer, so I, I I've been thinking about this for quite some time. Um, it, it just struck me that this really is uh, a story the the story of indigenous people struggling to hold on to our home is a is a story as old as America. I mean, that is fundamentally the story of the origin of America, right? It's the story of the displacement and, and theft, quite honestly, of native homes. And here we see in, 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 in 2018 that the story goes on, that, that, that in cities like Oakland and places like the Navajo Nation, 
it is still incredibly hard to live in dignity to to hold a home um, on on our homeland. If you're just joining us, you're listening to West Obsessed, where the writers and editors of High Country News talk about issues critical to the American West. Uh, today, we're talking about housing crises and how they sort of play out across the West, especially through a Native American family, both in the Bay Area and uh, on the Navajo Nation. Uh, to help us with that, we're joined by one of our writers, Julian Brave Noisecat, who's joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C., and um, also with the uh, indomitable Kate Schimmel, Deputy Editor, Digital. Julian, you're talking about these sort of twin crises. I wonder if you can take us to the Navajo Nation where, you know, Phyllis goes back and visits as often as she can, she hopes for once a year. And she has this wonderful quote. She says, if I had a choice when I grow old, that's where I want to be. I know how to survive out there. But life there is not particularly easy right now. I wonder if you could talk about the housing crisis on Navajo Nation and what her family is facing there. Absolutely. So the Navajo Nation is is a particularly troubling case of the housing crisis that exists in Native communities a- across the United States, on uh, particularly on Indian reservations. Um, at the end of the Obama administration, the the Department of Housing and Urban Development did a study that found that, that Indian country needs 68,000 new units of housing. And, and to put that in that, you know, really lofty number in perspective, that's that's roughly the amount of new construction called for in New York City's housing plan. So across the 567 federally recognized tribes, there is a housing need that is as big as the largest metropolises uh, in the United States. On the Navajo Nation, this issue is is quite acute. According to some uh, experts, the Navajo Nation needs to build 50,000 more units of housing in order to uh, adequately house its 175,000 on-reservation residents. Um, and to take you down from the level of big statistics, I know those are big numbers that are kind of hard for me to comprehend. What that means in, in effect is that there are many people across the Navajo Nation who are living uh, in substandard homes, who are living in, in, in mobile homes without running water, without electricity, that there are 5, 10, 15 family members sharing a home, and that there is base essential standard of living that, quite frankly, looks like a, a developing country for Americans who are used to, um, you know, seeing suburban homes and that sort of thing. I mean, this is, it's, it's hard, I, I think, if, if you come from, um, you know, an, another part of the country to really reckon with the fact that this exists in the most, uh, you know, wealthy country in, in, in the, on the globe. So, right. So the Phyllis on her side of the family are the Sandovals, and they have a homestead in Torreon, New Mexico, which is on the Navajo Nation. Um, What did you sort of encounter when you went to the homestead? Did you go to the homestead from, you know, had you been reporting in the Bay Area first? Uh, I actually went to Torreon first. So in the story, uh, it goes mm-hmm. Oakland to Torreon, but but in in the reporting, it was actually in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have uh, a little sister and and her her mother who live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. She goes to the Santa Fe Indian School, great little school in Santa Fe. Um, and so I went and visited with them, and then I made the trip out to Torreon. 
Um, one one thing that happened, and this is actually, since this is supposed to be sort of a background of the story story, there's actually two Torreon, New Mexico's. And I, you know, living in 2017 at the time, uh, punched Torreon, New Mexico into my GPS and oh, no. drove three hours in the wrong direction to the wrong Torreon, New Mexico. I once uh, left Stockton, California, trying to get to San Francisco, but I didn't realize that my no toll no toll bridges thing was uh, on my GPS. So I drove all the way around similar sort of like three hour circumnavigation of the Bay. because <laughs> The GPS didn't want to take me across a toll bridge. <laughs> so uh, we've all been, and that was on a reporting trip too. So uh, no, uh, no harm, no foul there. That's a, uh, and when this Trump infrastructure package passes, your no toll bridge thing is going to make it basically impossible to go anywhere. But that's, that's uh, beside the point. Oh yeah. yeah. We're, we're going to be fine. There's going to be plenty of, <laughs> There's not going to be any tolls when we're all living in a barbarous hellscape of nuclear Armageddon. Yeah, in, okay. in the corporateocracy. Um, <laughs> yeah, no. So I, I so that's the that was the beginning of the reporting trip. So I started on on poor footing, which was kind of funny because I've been to the Navajo Nation many times. So blindly following your your GPS is not a good idea. But the the Torreon chapter of the the Navajo Nation is on its easternmost edge. It's in what's called the checkerboard um, area of the reservation. So this is an area where there was a, a, a great deal of allotment under the Dawes Act, uh, which was basically a late 19th century effort to privatize and parcel Indian reservations. So the, the Sandoval family actually owns their own little plot of land in Torreon, uh, where they keep a, a little flock of sheep. So I actually went all the way out to Torreon, and I met Marlene, who doesn't feature as prominently in, in the story as, as the rest of the characters, but was really my connection to the, the Torreon side of the family. So she brought me down to the Sandoval homestead, where I met Fannie Mae, who's an awesome Navajo Nali, or, or grandmother, who still herds her sheep and, and only speaks Navajo. I met Joseph Jr., who's down there helping out Fannie Mae and got to see how, how they're living, which was, you know, kind of troubling because although they, they have their own land, which actually in the political economic landscape of housing on the Navajo reservation, that actually sets them at a slight advantage because most people don't have their own parcel. And so they have to get a parcel in some sort of way to even get housing. They have that going for them, but they still just got running water, you know, a couple of years ago and uh, are without electricity and are, are living in, in one of the homes that they live in is actually a, a home that Joe Wakazu built by hand uh, 20 years ago. So those are the kind of conditions they exist in. So yeah, you really have this family that's like sp- split apart by these two very, very different uh, sets of circumstances. How did you f- kind of pull that all together when you did go to the Bay Area what sort of connections did you make between them in terms of you know, what's similar about them? Because they sound so different. I, I think the fundamental similarity is that if you are a native person living in a city or on a reservation, it's highly likely statistically that you are living with housing insecurity, that, that your ha- housing is, is either too expensive or substandard, and that the fundamental you know, the American dream is is built on this notion that, you know, you get a chick in every pot and a car in every garage. But for very few Native people, is that a reality? Yeah, and that, that, in my mind, is, is again, uh, a story as old as the United States itself. I mean, 
when since white folks arrived have have native people uh, had a secure home. Right. And so the relationship there between displacement and survival, I think, is really important to point out. And what do you uh, you know, since you've been out there reporting, uh, what do we know about Joe now? Yeah, so I, I uh, went back to the Bay for for the holidays and, and stopped down. Joe, Joe hangs out. There's a, a couple of spots where the homeless native crews in, in Oakland hang out. One is by the lake and the other is at the corner of 30th Avenue and, uh, and International Boulevard, right in uh, the Fruitvale District, which is itself a little microcosm of America in the last you know, 10 years, uh, just down the block is the spot where Oscar Grant was, was shot by the police. It, it's a historically Latino neighborhood. And also right in the core of it, there is the Native American Health Center, which it, it's been sort of a, a native hangout spot since the seventies when there was a, an old Indian bar that, that folks would hang out at. So there's a, there's a little bus stop on the corner there of, of 30th and international where Joe and, and, and some of his friends, hang out most days because it's close to their services and because it's been sort of a little mini hub of the native community over the decades. So I went down there and, and, and I saw him and um, he's still handsome, which always lifts my spirits. He's still looking out for all of his friends out there. You know, I, I saw one of his friends come down and, and, you know, give him some food and come, come hang out with him for, for an hour you know he's still keeping on. I think now he uh, he's he's found a more safe place to sleep. So he he kind of has a little homeless commute that he makes from uh, East Oakland to Berkeley, which is a little bit safer, where he sleeps at night and then he comes back to East Oakland to hang out for the day. But it's still a very hard life for him. Uh, and I think that you know when when I talked to him for the story, he he wanted to stay in Oakland. But I think at this point, um, you know he's he's passed a year now of living on the streets. And I think at this point, if if he can find you know another person to to settle down with, or or um, an opportunity to move back to the Navajo Nation despite all the troubles there, I think he he might do it. And finally, in the last minute that we have here, what would you like people to take away from this story once they've read it or once they've heard this? What's what's the big lesson here? Do you think? Oh man, I I mean I don't I don't I don't want this to to be sort of. Uh, a fable in any sort of way, but I, I do think that the way in which um, we understand the the indigenous story on this continent is 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 really essential. Um, and I think the way in which we talk about the housing crisis in in this really statistical way is is troubling. So if there's anything I'd like I'd, I'd like listeners to take away from this is that home is is much more than the sum of its parts. And that indigenous people, despite this persistent centuries-long history of, of having their homes and their love attacked from economics and politics, are, are maintaining the love and finding ways to survive despite all the hardship. Well, I want to thank you very much for all of your hard work reporting and writing this story. Uh, for our listeners out there, if you want to read this story, you can do that uh, online at our website at hcn.org. If you'd like to continue this particular conversation online, you can do that at kvnf.org. Uh, Julian Brave Noise Cat, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk about this issue. Kate, thanks for all your insightful comments. Always here with the snark. For West Obsessed, I'm Brian Calvert, the editor-in-chief of High Country News, and thank you all for listening. Mm-hmm.